Hey, what's good? My name is Chris. I'm the owner of Stafford Studios, and I'm here to announce a brand new podcast that has been a passion project of mine for at least two years now. I've just now gotten to the point where I can do this, and this is the first episode, so I'm very, very excited. Uh, the podcast is called Music, Movies, and Modern Entrepreneurs, and I'm going to be interviewing people from all of those categories, and today is the first episode ever and I'm very, very excited to announce that the person I'm interviewing is my very own personal music professor, Dr. Lawrence Guaz. He's taught me music for years. He's a world-renowned musician. He is also a composer. He is just uh, such a huge, huge pillar in the world of classical saxophone music. I know that this podcast has three different topics that we're going to be talking about. And since music is the first in the title, I wanted to do music first. And Dr. Guaz is by far the most influential person in my professional music life. And so I wanted to interview him first. And so I'm very excited to announce this podcast. I hope you really enjoy it. Be sure to hit that like and subscribe so you'll know whenever we drop more podcasts. This podcast is not just going to be about music. It's going to be about movies and entertainment and also entrepreneurship. So I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Guaz. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast. Let's jump into it. In order to become a good musician, you have to play great music. You won't become a good musician playing substandard music. It needs to be great music. You were proof of that. That young man was proof of that. Every student who I encountered during my 36 plus years at Southern Miss and be before that, they, they got that impression. So the first two to three minutes of this podcast is actually a conversation that me and Dr. Gawaz had before we started filming, and it was just too good to pass up. So I wanted to include these two to three minutes of just fun uh, dialogue between us before the podcast even started. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Did you ever get a good look at that recipe for duck's blood soup that I sent you? I remember you sent it to me, and I started looking at it. Um, I don't. Th I don't know if I ever... I'll never forget that as long as I live. Well, that's actually... I'll never the... forget the phone call you made to your mom. I was standing there. Cause I, th I think those were the days where you had to use like a pay phone or something, right? Some, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, if there were cell phones, I don't think many of us had them. Uh, yeah, for sure not too, me. Too early, know. yeah. Um, I heard your mother cackling when you told her what you had to eat. Duck I thought it was delicious until you told me what it was. Duck. If we had duck's blood and your mother's just roaring, the favor I was going to ask you is coming now. Okay. Oh, I have such bad hat hair. You do not. I do. You do not. It's horrible. No. It's no worse than mine. Oh, that's pretty bad. I was actually going to cut my hair before, before coming in, but I didn't have a chance to. I'm not sick at all. I spilled a bottle of chlorine in the back of my truck without knowing it. And you inhale? Well, after after noticing that I brought it from... Even Clinton didn't inhale. He had a... I said... <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a fantastic interview. <laughs> it, when... Uh, when... I brought it from the pool place, and I didn't realize that it spilled. Uh, it's like, oh, it's that kind of chlorine. It was a huge, it was probably like a five, eight or eight gallon thing of chlorine. So I got to the house, went inside for a couple hours, and then 
when I went to go back to pick my daughter up from school, I got in and I was like, oh my gosh, like someone's going to die if they sit in this car for too long. And it, I'd spilled some in the back of my seat. It didn't spill a lot, but it, are, are you talking tablets? No, liquid chlorine. Soaked into the seat, soaked all over a shirt. Why do you use liquid chlorine in your... You have a pool, I take. It's just an above ground, little simple pool. But why liquid chlorine? Why not tablet? Well, I think we do have some of the little, little tablets they put in the little floater. Um, but that's just what the little pool place told us. It seems to work. We just use it. So anyways, I've been breathing I've never... in liquid chlorine for the past three days. It won't get out of my truck. So it's been like, my throat's been scratchy the past two days just because I've been- Yeah, that's not healthy. Inhaling chlorine. Well, I like, I sprayed Febreze. I did everything I could to try to get the smell out. And on the way here, I roll, I was driving with all the windows you down. You might have to get your, is it your truck? Detailed. You might have to get a detail to get rid of that. I need it. I need something for it because it's whatever it's doing now is not working. So, is there a name to this show, or what I'm going to name it is music, movies, and modern entrepreneurs. Those are the three things I've been most passionate about the past five years since I went through all this stuff. Well, music is always first love, and I just love anything movies or cinema. And then I've really been into entrepreneurship. So, I have a lot of people in my life that are small business owners mm -hmm. and I've got a lot of people who enjoy movies and TV shows and filmmaking. And then I've got a lot of people who are music as well. So it's going to be kind of split into three, just people that I know that are either have to do with the music part of my life, the movie or cinema part of my life, and then the entrepreneur part. So mm -hmm. you're the first, I said, if I'm going to interview anybody, it's got to be Dr. G. So... Well, hello everybody. My name is Chris, and this is the very first episode of uh, Music, Movies, and Modern Entrepreneurs. I've got the icon of uh, classical saxophone himself, Dr. Lawrence Quaz, first guest on here, but he has also just been a huge mentor and such an um, influential person in my life. And so I just wanted to meet with Dr. Quaz. It's been several years since we've met in person, and I just wanted to catch up and ask him questions and just kind of share the experience uh, with you guys and the, and the influence he's had and uh, on my life, not just as a musician, but as a as a man, as a human. And so, Dr. Guaz, thank you for opening your home to this amazing shrine of awesomeness that is your house. And thank you for setting aside the time. And um, I'm sure there are hundreds of accolades I could, you know, if this was a boxing match, I could probably, you know, share all the accolades and accomplishments you've had and we'll get into that but i just wanted to formally say thank you it's an honor to to have you and well on gigs that i used to play that we always at the end of it would say the pressure was all ours the <laughs> that there we go there we go that yeah so for those of you who may not know dr guaz has been such a staple and uh pillar in the saxophone community he uh i'll let, I'll let him kind of share uh, especially what stuff he's been involved in and kind of his journey. But um, he was my uh, private saxophone instructor for many years, many years throughout junior high, high school, and college. And um, he's just been just a huge influence. And um, he is, just, I just don't know how to really explain our relationship other than the fact that he has been an, just an awesome mentor for so many years. And, um, but he is just, he's, he's very world-renowned. He's a musician. He's a composer. Um, he's an instructor. He's done everything. And I'd like to let him kind of share uh, his story and what he did and what he's done 
but the relationship between us is that we met each other when I was young and we can kind of share that story too. But Dr. Guaz, the floor is yours. Maybe can you kind of tell us uh, in a nutshell, um, however long you need or however, whatever you would like to say as far as maybe how you got into music or what, what kind of started your passion into music. And then we can kind of talk about, you know, where you taught and things yeah, you've done. Sure. Um, most people who know me pretty well know that I'm not a native Mississippian. Um, I was born in Western New York, Niagara Falls to be exact. Slowly we turned back then. And um, I was a late starter, comparatively speaking, um, on um, the saxophone. In fact, my first in the first instrument that I ever had any uh, sort of experience with was, of course, it goes without saying, it goes hand in hand with my national uh, upbringing and so forth, uh, was the accordion. Um, my mom had visions of my becoming the next Lawrence Welk, partly because that was my, the, I had the same first name as he did. Um, the problem with that, though, was the fact that uh, having been born with spina bifida, that uh, neurological um, disability uh, that comes along at birth, um, bearing large weights, especially in the upper part of your body, w was a real issue. And uh, so e even though the size of the accordion that was handed to me wasn't nearly the same size as a normal size, uh, I never really took to it. I probably had a couple of months of lessons uh, for which I didn't practice. Um, I don't know anything about not practice. Right. <laughs> for lessons. And uh, so the teacher said, looked at my dad at, at one of the lessons and he said, we don't need to be doing this. He's not interested. He doesn't want to do this. Um, why don't we wait with this? So gave it up. And I was probably, I'm going to take a wild guess because I can't really remember, but I think I was about five or six years old when that accordion was handed to me. Yeah. And I didn't look at another instrument, at least to play, until I was 13. Yeah. And you know already, you can, I mean, just relate to your own background when you were that age. I mean, you started, uh, you were in sixth grade, so I think you were, like you said, you were 11, okay? So I was two years behind schedule, so I'll say. Um, and what what motivated that is um, in between episodes of The Price is Right and Concentration, a friend of mine who lived down the street um, would off and on stop at my house, uh, on his get off his bike, and we'd chit chat and so forth, and said, "Hey, Guaz, why, why don't you come with me for saxophone lessons?" He he had already started this uh, playing saxophone the year prior, the, during summer lessons. The school that I attended had a summer music program uh, where the directors taught private lessons. And my mother heard that from the kitchen. She came running out. She said, that's a great idea. She was all about it and said, um, yeah, why don't you do that? And I said, well, I don't even have a saxophone. And she said, we'll get you one. We'll, f we'll find one for you. you know. So um, 
one thing, the first thing that had to happen, though, was to get the director's permission to start. And the school district that I attended, you took what was called a seashore test in music that tested your sense of melody, uh, sense of rhythm, you know, uh, the basic elements in music uh, to see, you know, just if you even showed signs of talent, basically. And uh, to cut to the chase, the director said that, well, some of my scores were okay, some of the scores were, mm, uh, but let's give it a go. So uh, that was the sign for my parents to go rent an instrument from the LaSalle Music Shop in Niagara Falls. And there's a little bit of a side story there. Had I known then what I know now about saxophones, and you can relate to this because of an instrument that you wound up buying, um, that saxophone that they rented for me, I should have held on to and probably, uh, my parents would have probably paid a couple hundred dollars for it because it's the kind of saxophone that I wound up playing much later in life. Um, it was made by the Busher Company uh, it resembled Mr. Rosher's instrument, except it was silver. Yeah. So there's no telling how much it's yeah, worth. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I started those lessons with, with the director and, uh, and Bill, the, that friend of mine from down the street, we, we went to lessons together. Uh, the moms traded drive, uh, what do you call that? Carpool, um, rides to the lesson. So anyway. To cut to the chase, within three months, I caught up to the other guy um, because I discovered that this was something that I could do. I mean, you know, a kid who walks the way I do with physical issues and so forth and so on, you kind of get this mindset of, oh, what can I do in life? I can't play football. I can't play baseball. Da, 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 you know, at least not to any sort of level. So um, when I started to play the saxophone and got a kick out of it, I would start practicing hard. Like I would put in three hours of practice a day and nobody had to push me I, because I was having a blast playing this old geezer of a saxophone and doing okay. So it was no, there was no secret to why, how and why I caught up to Bill in such a short amount of time. He wound up quitting at the end of the next um, academic year in, in junior high band. I was, I, my first year in band was in the eighth grade and uh, I wound up getting, no, I, I was second chair. That's right. One of the few times I was second chair. Anyway, <laughs> one of the few. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, one year later, oh, I wound up going to my first solo competition after only playing for eight months. Yeah. Um, but see, I had a team of teachers who pushed. And you know what it's like to have a pushy teacher because you had one. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I, and when we were preparing for that solo competition, I looked straight at my director because it, it was during the Christmas break and he was giving extra lessons. That's how industrious 
the music program was there. And I looked him straight in the eye and I said, I've got a question. He said, yeah, what you, what you need? And I said, no, I, I had only been playing at that point between six and eight months. He's, I said, what would you say if I wanted to do this for a living? Go to college, major in this, and all that kind of thing. And he looked straight back at me and he said, Was, if you get good, there will be a place for you. And I'll never forget that one response he gave to that question because I took that and ran with it. So I said, okay. So I said, so the amount of practicing that I'm doing right now, he said, oh yeah, keep it up, don't quit it. So I did. And uh, yeah, so in the middle of that first year of band, which was eighth grade, there's, there's this old man with a gold pusher, saxophone, gold-plated saxophone, comes to my school to play a concert with a, an area pianist. And it's the first time I ever heard somebody play like this, serious music. Of course, you and I both know who that was. And um, after his little shtick concert with the pianist, he came back to the band room and gave a mini clinic for the band. And I'm sitting there. And he kept asking the, audience, uh, the band, like, does anybody have any questions? You know, and no, everybody's afraid of this man. I mean, he was like, you know, seven. That was, he was in his early 60s already, still playing. And um, nobody wanted to ask, well, okay, then I will just tell you a little bit about the saxophone history and da 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 da, you know, and everybody's just scratching their head, bored to death, you know. So when the bell rang and everybody had to run to the math class or geology class or whatever they had to run to, I went up to him, bold as brass, and I said, pardon me, could I ask you a question? Yes. And I said, I would like to know why you wear your ligature on your mouthpiece with the screws on the top because mine goes on my mouthpiece with the screws on the bottom, right? And he, his eyes just opened wide, and he said, why didn't you ask this before? I mean, I was getting the royal chew from Mr. Osher. And, I, and he doesn't even know my name, and I'm getting chewed. But it was funny. I mean, to anybody who's watching this, they'd probably be laughing their head off. So I said, well, I was, I don't know why I didn't ask. And he said, very well, I will tell you why. It's because it works better for me that way. That's all he said. And I said, oh, okay. Could I ask you what kind of reeds you play? And then he's getting a little frustrated by me because he's saying, why didn't you ask when I asked for questions, you know? And, and he said, well, I play wooden reeds made by Van Doren. And I said, okay, thank you. And then I went on to my class, you know. 
But that was my first experience with Mr. Rosher. I was 13 and met him for the first time. And you don't forget situations like that because he proved to be the most influential person in my professional career. Well, I mean, some years down the road when I became a college student in, in Western New York, Fredonia, um, he was looking for players to play in his ensemble and my professor recommended me to him. I was just a sophomore. I Yes, I was a sophomore then. And I was supposed to have gone to Mr. Rosher's workshop the previous summer, but I wrecked my dad's car the day before they were going to take me, no less. I had to cancel out of it. At the, I don't know if you know this story, but yeah, I had to I pull. I've never heard of. Yeah, I had to pull out of that because I was hurt. I I'd suffered good whiplash. I went straight on into a phone pole with my dad's. Big Buick LeSabre. Yeah. Had I stayed home and eaten the dinner that my mom was preparing as opposed to go, going to a Dairy Queen Burger King thing or whatever, <laughs> you know, I might have been... The story would have been different. Yeah, right. So when Dr. Wyman, my professor, recommended me for that position in the ensemble, Mr. Rasha said, oh, I, re I know who that is. I remember him. I... We met uh, a few times in Niagara Falls, and uh, he was to come to the workshop this summer, but he had a car accident. Yes, let him come. Let him come. So, and um, that those were the early stages of what became a wonderful, wonderful relationship uh, and very impactful relationship, uh, as it turns out, because. As you know, my most of my CDs are tributes to him in one way or another uh, by playing repertoire that he was responsible for um, being the source of inspiration to composers and um, and their pieces that don't always get played by other people in the in the field. So anyway, I should let you talk. No, that's that's wonderful. I, you've answered like three of the <laughs> questions that I had, so that was that was um, okay. That was great. Actually, on the way up here, I was telling Doctor Guaz before we started that um, I was listening to I want to say it was the birthday songs for birthday music, birthday music, yes, uh, for Doctor Rasher. Um, and on the way up here, and I think I could be wrong, but I think m me and you have played at least one or two of those pieces together, or started it. Because when I heard it, I remembered. I said, "I've played, I've played some of this. I don't know if maybe I just looked at it, or maybe we just played around in a lesson one day together." Oh, I think you were the person who wanted to know really badly how to make that percussive sound with the tongue. <laughs> yeah, I got and and you got it. <laughs> I got in trouble so many times for slap tonguing and and band <laughs> so many times just because I could do it and that and and when I finally figured out how to do it, I would slap. But tongue do you remember everywhere. how you learned? Um, I don't know. If I, I do. do. I don't know if I. I do. You asked me, how do you do that sound? How do you make that sound happen? Because you had heard the recording. You know? uh, a slap tongue is um just for those who may not know is a is a a percussive kind of. It's a sound. It's a slap, a popping sound um that you make with on the reed of the mouthpiece, and it it sounds like nothing that should come out of a saxophone ever. 
uh, but it sounds very, very cool. Um, and I would always want to learn how to do it and never want to practice anything else until I could slap time it's properly. It's like pulling, like pizzicato on a, on a violin. Yes, that's very... Plucking the string. Yeah. But I, I don't remember how I learned it. I do remember listening and it's thinking... Quite, it's a quite simple story. The way you asked me, and I said, well, this is how I learned. I, and I was not taught how to do it by a teacher uh, as so much as by a, a fellow saxophone player who was just a couple of years old older than I was at the time uh, at Fredonia at, in college. Um, he just told me to seal, my, uh, this was off the mouthpiece, seal the flat part of my tongue against the roof of my mouth, try to push up as hard as I could to create like a real seal, and then snap it away as quickly as I could. And he said, you're going to have to do that quite a bit before you even try doing something on the instrument. And so I told you that story, and you tried it a couple of times in front of me in, in, in the lesson, and then I said, okay, I mean, I had to just leave you alone, and I said, you're going to get it. You won't get it today. You might not even get it tomorrow, but you'll get it because you're, you're going about it the right way. The next week you had it. And the reason you had it is because you heard the sound first, you know? You heard the sound of what it, what the end result should be, and so you had that goal in mind. And it, I don't know versus being told what it is without hearing it. Yeah, and having to. Yeah, I'll um, I'm not sure where exactly this uh, podcast will be posted to, but if it's like on YouTube, I'll I'll post a link to uh, the song that Doctor Guaz is referring to, and that he played to, as a reference if anybody wants to listen to the. The song, it's very... That's the piece that I recorded with Stefan. It's, I listened to that um, multiple times on the way up. I drove from the coast up to Hattiesburg. It's about an hour and a half, about an hour and a half drive. And, um, but I listened to that just today, and um, it, brought back, it brought back a lot of memories. Um, I, I'd get in, in trouble all the time for slap-tugging, <laughs> all the time. And when it was unnecessary, it was just I just learned it and thought it was the coolest. Here I thought you were going to tell me you got into trouble for playing your parts up an octave. Uh, if not too octave sometimes, I would always get in trouble. I would always get in trouble, especially in band. My, I would always want to, the trumpets always had the coolest part in the stands tunes and the melodies, and so I'd always get in trouble for playing either my parts up an octave or playing the, the trumpet parts, and um, I don't know. But one of the coolest things, just to, just to segment, I don't even want to pull up these notes yet, but one of, the, one of the coolest things that I have on my list that I wanted to just share about how Dr. Guaz has really impacted me is I remember he would always make me um, practice and learn things without looking at the music first. So it was always, he always challenged me to hear the music for what it was and, and would push me in lessons to do certain exercises or certain techniques that, honestly, I felt like the Karate Kid a lot and you were Mr. Miyagi. And, you know, Mr. Miyagi always had these cool, creative ways to teach Danielson. And in the time... You know, Karate Kid, Danielson is like, this makes no sense. What am I doing? And there were so many times I felt like that where he would have me practice certain things or do certain things. And at the time, I was like, this is crazy. What? You know, like, I don't understand why he's having me do this or, you know, and then, but then as I kept going, I realized that it was so much more important at the time than, than what I realized. And so he was developing. Uh, a knowledge and a, a passion for music in itself for hearing it 
rather than relying on my eyes on the paper, whether it's written I, notes or... I have to correct you about one part of that story. You're, you're right. Correct before. away, please. Well, the f you do recall the first time I ever, ever heard you play. Yes, and that was... That was one thing I wanted to um, to talk. Uh, my my version is probably way simpler and way less detailed. So I'll sh if it's okay, I'll share my, yeah, sure. my version first because Dr. Gloss was an adult at the time and I was a mere eleven year old. So my my version may be a little little more skewed. But the first time we met, we were talking earlier about how you did like a a music tryout thing at school to see if the school if you had the ability to kind of catch on to music for melody and for rhythm, you know, you would kind of try out or whatever. So my, my school did the same thing and they, they brought a, a saxophone mouthpiece to school and they, I had to, they had brought a trombone mouthpiece and a trumpet mouthpiece. And the guy was like, you need to play trombone. You would be terrible at saxophone. Like you have the worst, I'm sure ever, like you don't need to play saxophone. I was like, but that's what I want to play. Like that's the instrument I wanted to play. So long story short, I chose the saxophone and fell in love with it. Um, uh, you had been playing for a while. Yes, like sir. So a few I, weeks or yeah, I, I think I started in like September, yeah. October, and it was Christmas time. And um, I just remember, um, like when I had gotten that saxophone, I just wanted to play everywhere. I, that's all I wanted to do was play. Partially, you know, because my dad had uh, Pink Floyd, um, Crazy Diamonds on repeat all the time, and that saxophone. So I'd fast forward the whole song to that saxophone solo. So I just, I was obsessed with the saxophone. And so, anyways, when I got it, and uh, they were talking the the um worship pastor at the time was talking about how they're doing a Christmas special or Christmas concert. And they were asking people back in the day, I don't know if churches do this anymore. Back in the day, they would ask people to come up and perform specials. And I just wanted to play. I knew the piano, the piano player for the church, uh, was the mom of one of my uh, good friends growing up. And so I said, I really want to play this music. I really want to play a Christmas song. And she's like, well, I need music. I was like, well, I don't need music. I don't want music. I was like, I just, I just want to play the song. And she's like, well, the band needs music. And I was like, well, I don't have, <laughs> I'm here. I am 11 years old. Just telling the, the, the lady, I don't have music. And, and so I remember going to the, I don't remember much, but I do remember going on stage to practice during one of the rehearsals. And, um, I told her what key I wanted it in. And she just kind of looked at me. I was like, yeah, I need it in this key. Cause this is what I, the only key I knew I'd only been playing for a couple months. I think I played like Jingle Bells or something. It was. It was Jingle Bells. And, and so we played and, um, no sheets, no no music, no sheets. I just kind of like listened. I just knew, just from listening to the song so many times as a kid. I just remember learning it, and the the piano, the pianist kept asking me, "Are you sure you don't want music?" And I said, "Why well, I don't? This be distracting for me. I just want to. I wanted to be able to look. I remember wanting to be able to look at the people and see their reactions because it was Christmas time. I think it had like a Santa hat on or something. I don't even remember. But long story short, I played this song, and to me, I felt like I did probably horrible. And it wasn't to honestly, it just wasn't anything normal or or it wasn't anything special to me because I was um, just so involved in church and I loved music. So it was like, oh, here's this kid who played Jingle Bells. And then I got off the stage and that was it. A few people pat me on the back. Oh, good job. I didn't think twice of it. And um, so then my mom, I don't know how long, a couple of days, maybe, maybe a week or so. No, it was that day. That day. I don't, I don't remember the time frame, but she, she was like, yeah. I went right up to her. She's like, uh, Dr. Guaz, he, uh, you may have spoken to her that day. I don't, I don't remember when she spoke to me about it. I, I can't remember when, but she just came up to me and she said, there was this, this really good, amazing saxophone player, this great guy, you know, he, he wants to help you learn and offer you lessons. <clears throat> I didn't know anything about saxophone. I just knew 
how to play a few notes. And so I just remember her trying to tell me, she was really trying to explain who Dr. Guaz was. And I was just, I mean, I'm 11 years old. I was like, I don't know. I was like, sounds fun to me. Like, I, I love it. I want to get better. And she's like, no, you don't understand. Like he, he's amazing. And I was like, yeah, I want to learn. And she's like, but you don't understand. Like he, <laughs> he wants to teach you. And I was like, sure, let's do it. And, uh, and so I, I still, to this day, um, I feel like I owe everything um, creatively in my life to Dr. Guaz. I'm sure you can get to that later, but it, I remember going up the elevator in the PAC at Southern Miss, never seeing him before in my life, don't even know what he looks like, don't know what I'm doing, what I'm getting myself into. Um, and I remember walking down, because your office used to be in the further. Yes. And I, so we had to walk down that long hall, and I just remember opening the door, and I was just like, I don't even know what I'm doing here, but this is amazing. He had all, we're sitting in this room with all these posters and, you know, on the wall now in his office and um, the rest was history. That's how we met. I, I'd never met Dr. Guaz before, um, but just from his generosity and his kindness of wanting to, you know, continue to pass down the legacy of music and, and knowledge of the saxophone, he uh, well, wanted, to, wanted to teach and offer me a lesson. The beginning of the kicks took place little more than a year after that. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, because you had regularly scheduled lessons after school with me. And as time passed, I could see, okay, I mean, I remember teaching you the beginning stages of vibrato, you know, and all, all those kinds of things, and they were they were happening. And before you knew it, we were talking about entering you in your first competition that involved not not just playing five minutes or anything like that. You had to play, what, a movement of a concerto, a couple of movements of a, I think, a Handel sonata. My, stop me if I... No, that's right. It was... and, then, um, and then the real kick was you having to le learn that violin piece called the B. Still one of my favorite pieces. Yeah. Of all time. you had been playing with me, at least. You hadn't been playing but maybe a year and a half. I'm gonna say, and um, <laughs> that 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 was such a kick because you walked in. By that point, you got a good saxophone in your hands, and you know, good equipment and so on. And and you went in there and you showed them who the boss was when it came to that program. And there there was absolutely no question they awarded you first prize. And the funny part of that was that I stayed outside the room that you played in and uh, listen through the door because I figured I'm, I'm going to make him so nervous he doesn't need me in the room. So I stayed out of the room and um, our clarinet professor at the time was I think the room monitor and he w when you were finished he came out and just went oh. <laughs> I'll, I, I'll never forget that either. That that was such a... And I said, did you like that? And he said, yeah, who is that? And I said, well, that's Chris Stafford. He's from Oak Grove. Oh, I said, yeah, he's he's been taking lessons from me for last year. Really? I mean, his eyes were just like popping like wool. And... um so of course you know you like your your judges were just blown out of the water like because they could tell how young you were and, and playing what you wound up playing and you know i mean that was a first big step and then the next year we added stronger music to your repertoire and i think i think uh i never really understood the level of difficulty 
a lot of the songs I was playing just because I was always surrounded by you and your college students. And it was just a, a normal thing. It was just a normal, like I didn't, I didn't, I never thought of myself as. You didn't know what difficult meant. Well, I get, that's yeah. probably a fair thing to say. I didn't, it was just normal for me to go hang out with, you know, college music students and Dr. Guaz. And it was just like, it was like excellence was the standard. And so I just, I just kind of fell into this routine of being around wonderful musicians and, and difficult songs. I never thought that anything I did was difficult, but I would listen to some of other Dr. Guaz's students and what they were playing and recordings of his. And so, um, I, that's, I think that's one of the biggest reasons of, of why I just enjoyed it so much is I just, I never really realized like other people would say, wow, Chris, you're so young and you're, you're playing such hard music, but I never thought of myself that way. I never looked at it as I'm young and playing all this hard music. It just was, was normal. Like, I, I don't know. Like when I, I tried out for Lions Band my freshman year and I didn't even know what Lions Band was. And, um, whoever them call You thought they were in a zoo. Or yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. I was like, Hey, Dr. Guazer, this is Lions Band. He helped me pick songs. Every, every audition I did, sometimes we had to do the time restraints. We had to, you know, cut pieces or. So he would always help me pick um, great, great uh, audition sources that would kind of show off the technical side and then the, the musicality side of it. And um, anyways, he helped me get some music together and they called me back and they're like, yeah, you got a first year callback. I was like, that's cool. And I went on play it and my mom was like, no, like you got first year callback. And I was like, I didn't know what that meant at, at the time. I didn't even know. And uh, Dr. Guaz was just, he'd always, you know, push me to never take for granted what, what the opportunities were or that opportunities I would have from, from playing music. And so I, I didn't, Dr. Guaz did a great job at helping me realize over the years, just how important it is not necessarily to be the best, but just to give your best. And every lesson I ever came into with him, um, there were, there were times, especially during the summer where I'd walk in and he'd say, uh, all right, so what'd you practice? And within a matter of seconds, he could tell whether or not before I even got my horn out, what I had practiced and what I had gotten better at and there were times where he was like all right we're just i can remember him being like well it's, it's obvious we're not gonna get much done today let's just we're gonna call it we're gonna call it and you know and the, but that's the type of leadership and accountability i needed and so it was it was just such a looking back on it it's crazy because I, I i went to fredonia uh, fredonia as, as a seventh grader well i think i was se i don't think i was in eighth grade yet at the time it was the summer before eighth grade but it was a saxophone workshop and you jumped into a van into a van with like six of us <laughs> all these college students i don't even know what my parents were thinking but they was like hey they're going to new york i'm like sign me up i'm going like dr guaz was the only besides my parents was like the only family and and his his students and the um just the program that he had at southern miss it was just the it was the only thing i knew like that's i didn't do sports um all i did was practice my my sax and Every free chance I would get, I would go to Southern Miss and hear him conduct the sax chamber orchestra or, you know, listen to quartets. And so I was just this little scrawny kid from the outside who was just obsessed with all of the the saxophone environment and culture that Dr. Guas had created at Southern Miss. And um, so it was just, uh, that's all I knew. I just wanted to be around it. So when, that, when the opportunity came to go to, to, go to New York, which I, I didn't realize... At the time, but that's where uh, Dr. Walls was from, from Fernonia and from Niagara Falls. It was just such an amazing experience to go 
And, and at, at the time, I didn't. Why take did I? Either. Why did I pull you into that? I mean, you're, there's one important piece of information that I mean. What did you go for to he, to study with and hear? Yeah, the, the, Rasher, the, Quartet. the Rasher Quartet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so that that's one thing that uh, I don't know. It, Dr. Guaz was always great at um, trying to get me to see the bigger picture, and not just in the music, but in life, in everything. And so he, we had this, I had this amazing opportunity, which even looking back on now, I still don't understand the magnitude of uh, the opportunity of, you know, of all the opportunities I had studying under Dr. G over here. But we got to go listen to the, to the Rasher Quartet and they had a workshop. It was multiple days long. And, you know, I got to sit in with these, you know, some of the best saxophonists in the world and, and be a part of a, a sax orchestra and do exercises with them and, you know, learn things. And, and, um, but, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on, on that trip or at least your experience and, and, and maybe bringing a seventh grader um, uh, along with a bunch of, bunch of college students. Probably one of the coolest memories I have as a musician, even at the time being so young, I just remember it being so weird that like people get to do this for a living or that people get to study this because I mean the thought of college to me was still so foreign because I was just so young and so just being around all these older students and as a matter of fact you look just like this Dr. Guaz is pulling out the the relics now oh man that is an oldie yeah they they needed to hear what this guy had to say and do at, at that point in his life and um Introducing you to that kind of an experience was uh, important. So, um, and I, I wanted them to pour into you um, what I knew they would pour, and um, you know, it was nothing but encouragement, of course, you know, from four experts in the field. And so, anyway, um, that that's pretty much my. One of Say the, on that. One of the things I remember specifically about the that workshop is one of the things Dr. Guaz used to make me do in our in our lessons early on is that I think they would call it saxophone ping pong or I'm not sure what you would where I would have to turn my back or close my eyes and he would play a note and then I would have to try to play that same note on the first try. So I just remember that for some reason. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of tough because, you know, I don't have perfect pitch or anything. But, you know, there are times where I'd be really close and, you know, so he would play a note and I would have to try to guess what that note is without looking. And so we would we would do that as a... When I was younger, we did that, I remember, pretty fairly often. I could be wrong. But I remember it was something that I enjoyed doing and it was a good challenge. And so we did that in uh, in at the Saxophone workshop, workshop in Fredonia was this other guy who looked young his name was craig remember craig he looked craig like, lundgren yes he looked like he was my age but he was a lot older he was just a sm- he was just a smaller guy looked young and i was so i was like man there's another seventh grader here i was like i'm so upset like i was excited to be the youngest person there um and that's one thing dr guas as a side note has always kind of reiterated to me is it's always good to not be the smartest person in the room or the most talented that way you can learn and so I enjoyed, you know, Dr. Guaz always put me in situations where I could learn, um, whether that was from someone my own age or someone who was much older. So he he always created opportunities for me to be around people who were more established, um, 
uh, who were older or who were, you know, just more experienced, like bringing me to the workshop or all these different things. He'd always let me be around his college students and do things because, um, I don't know his intentions behind it, but to me it was, it was really cool because I learned at an early age how important it was to be a sponge and to soak things up. So we were at this workshop and I saw this guy who's, it turns out to be really, really nice guy, you know, work, um, worked with him a little bit at Southern and studied some. And cause I think he was at that time he wasn't with, he wasn't at Southern Miss, right? But he ended up. No, he was, he would have still been in high school, I think. Yeah. But he did end up studying at Southern. Oh, he with, came here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I ended up knowing him. And even though um, I was always just like this little kid who hung around, like I would just show up to things. And I was just kind of the, you know, the second or third cousin that would show up to parties uninvited. But I got to know a lot of his students and they were much older than me. And they were always very kind. But when I first saw him at Craig, I, I didn't um, didn't realize uh, that he was a little older than me. And, and I, I distinctly remember at the workshop, they were doing this exercise and they were like, you know, I don't, I don't, I, in my mind, they called it ping pong. I don't know what it could maybe call it something Is else, it? but they had this, you know, they brought him up on, on stage and there was, I don't know how many people were at that workshop, probably at least a hundred. 30. No, oh, not, not that not many. 30. Okay. So in my, as a seventh grader, it seemed like a hundred, but you know, all these great musicians and, you know, saxophonists and were in this room and, and before one of the rehearsals, I think they just called him up there and they said, anybody want to? do this exercise and I was like me I want to do it I want to do it right now and and I just remember I can't remember how many I got right but I just remember standing back to usually have standing back to back like the old you know gun duels we wouldn't march and throw horns at each other but we would stand back to back and you know close our eyes and he would play a note and I would try to match that note and and so it's just one of the memories I have of that obviously there's way there's there's a lot more amazing things that happened at that clinic but it's just one that sticks out to me because um in that moment i was kind of thrown into an environment of like being sometimes in order to do great things you have to be uncomfortable you know and so um and so it made me in that moment i was like i kind of enjoy the uncomfortableness of like being around people who are so much better than i am and it just kind of pushed me um to do that and i just kind of got addicted to that feeling of I want to be around people who know more than I do because then I can learn. And so um, I, I don't remember how many of those notes I got right, but I do remember and um, remember just getting a few pats on the back and maybe a thumbs up from Dr. Guaz or, you know, just you know, like, hey, good job. You know, you stepped up and and did it. it even if it was just a, a very elementary exercise. But uh, I, at that moment, I can it was kind of a staple. I can remember, remember thinking that, you know, I, I like this feeling of, kind of going above the expectations and doing things that most people my age probably wouldn't wouldn't want to do and I'll let Dr. Guaz elaborate on that but that's one of the notes I have here is um as a quote that you can't be great and comfortable at the same time and that's that's one of the things that Dr. Guaz always pushed me to do is to is to not necessarily be the best he he I don't think I can't remember ever one time that he ever said you know you have to be first or you have to be the best or you know, if, if you're going to disappoint me if you're not, but it was always, he knew that I was capable of more. So yeah. he always just pushed me to be my best and always set the, the standard of excellence, which honestly is carried out through my entire life. Even though I haven't, um, after college, I didn't really do much with saxophone, but it, it set the standard of, um, drive for the kind of man I am today. You know, I, I, everything I do, I do it to my best. I always, 
uh, I still remember a lot of the teachings that he, you know, uh, gave me and, and just life lessons and stories. And just, there was always so much more than saxophone and lessons with him. It was, it was, how can we make you a better person, a better musician, uh, a better leader? Cause a lot of times he would teach me these things and I would go off to these clinics or high school or lion's band or whatever I would do. And at that time, I didn't realize how much knowledge and leadership he was pouring into me because it was just normal. Like for me, it was just a normal thing to be with Dr. Guaz, which is just crazy because it's not a very normal thing uh, to be able to study under someone like him. But at the time, it was just normal. But he he really instilled so much um, compassion and just a desire for excellence that it carried out. No matter every job I've had, I've always just put my best foot forward. Um, and Dr. Guaz, you know, we had a lot of uncomfortable conversations where he would tell, he would tell me and call me out on if I wasn't doing my best or if I wasn't practicing enough, or, um, he would always push me to do more and to be better and to work harder and, uh, to memorize concertos and memorize these pieces and practice more. And, you know, so it was never a, he, he was never a, one of those coaches who's just impossible to please, but more of a a mentor that you want to please and say, you know, I would come in and just excited to show him what I had practiced that week. Um, and so that, I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned just from Dr. Guaz over the years is, uh, the importance of hard work and, uh, of dedication, because I told my wife, uh, and kids yesterday that, um, you know, you are, are by far and the, probably the most, not probably by far for sure, uh, the most influential person I've ever had in, in my life, regardless of, music or saxophone, but you've, um, now you're not going to tell them how much I've paid you to say all of this. <laughs> He's paid me nothing. Actually, I'm like the worst host ever. You're supposed to send your, your guest a list of questions. And I didn't, I didn't send him anything. I was like, hey, I'm going to send you these podcast questions. And I never did. Uh, but I told, uh, you know, hand on the Bible. I told my wife and kids yesterday, we were coming back from the beach and my daughter was asking who I was going to interview. Cause I do a lot of video interviews and stuff, but this is the first like podcast interview I've done. And so I told her, I said, I'm going to interview uh, my old saxophone teacher. And they're like, Oh, that's awesome. Um, and so Dr. Guaz sincerely over the past years has, has felt, um, more of like a, a father figure and a mentor than, than a instructor. I mean, I know it's been several years since we've seen each other, but, um, you, he's coached me so much through the years and through the the lessons of just life of what it means to do your best and forget the rest and what it means to be uncomfortable. I can remember times where I was in the summertime, where I'd, I'd be preparing for something and I'd go on a trip and Dr. Guaz is like, you bring in your saxophone? And I'm like, I certainly am. And I would always, whether I was staying the night at a friend's house, I would always, we had sleepovers or hangouts. I would always bring my saxophone, family vacations. I'd bring my horn and I'd practice and I'd practice because I knew that he saw something in me that I feel like, you know, I didn't want to let him down. Not that I, he ever said that I did, but I always wanted to, to work my best. But honestly, and, and sincerely, everything that I've learned from you, Dr. Guaz, even uh, the music in itself has kind of poured into the worship leader side of what I did in the ministry, just the desire for excellence and how to lead people and how to understand music in general and theory and you know you taught me so much about theory before even reading notes I remember the first several lessons we had it was no music you're like no music we're just gonna we're gonna understand what it means to listen 
to music and to hear the music. And so just the appreciation of art in itself, I just learned so much mm-hmm. from, from you and it trickled into every aspect of my life, uh, playing the piano and leading worship on the guitar. And I just had a desire to learn all these other instruments. So it wasn't just a, a saxophone instructor. It was more just a, a life mentor of, I got to learn all these amazing things from one of the most renowned saxophonists in the world. And, but also felt like a father figure as well, not just a, an instructor, not just a teacher. Um, and so I just, I just wanted you to know that, that you really have impacted my life. And I feel like a lot of the good qualities that I have came, uh, you know, not just from my parents, but from you, um, just, you know, demanding excellence, but demonstrating kindness at the same time. So you knew what, what I was capable of. And there are a lot of times I still go back and think of those lessons that you've taught me. And, you know, I, I was trying to teach those to my kids. And, um, so you just, I just want to thank you for all the things you imparted to me, not just the saxophone techniques and in the time, obviously you, you dedicated, invested so much time, uh, into me as a musician, but you know, you could have easily just you know, had those lessons, done the check marks. All right, we're done. Close the door. But you were, you were always more interested in me than you were in my abilities on the saxophone. That's what, that's how I felt. And well, during those years, you probably never knew this or or were never made aware of this. And that's the fact that you were an experiment for me. Um, I've mentioned his name several times through this time. Um, Mr. Rosher, um, during the workshops that I attended, that he presented, uh, would almost always uh, be aimed at not just helping people become better musicians and players of the instrument, but also help them become better teachers. And um, the various uh, facts that he shared with us based on his years as as a teacher... um, came out and you know you take copious notes during those sessions and and then try to remember how to implement what he shared to see if they would work for you and your years of lessons proved to be an experiment for me to see well if what he was encouraging us to consider using would in fact work with especially the uh, younger player and inevitably they did so it it was um, like I said it was an experiment to see if if I could really follow suit uh, on what he handed down to me to see if she would work with you and they did so yay for that well that's very cool and I appreciate you sharing that. I I mentioned something a minute ago, and then I'll stop talking because I really want to hear more from more from you. But I I, I mentioned earlier I kind of felt like um, the Karate Kid, and that you know Mr. Miyagi always had these. He always had Daniel to look at the situations differently than what they were. Like don't just look at it as painting the fence. How it was, you know, these different metaphors. But I can. That's one thing that. I spent so much time with Dr. Guaz and learning that when I would go other places, I hate to say with, with normal people, <laughs> but with normal people, um, the things that I would do, they would look at me and say, why are you, 
why is your ligature, you know, on the top rather than on the bottom? Like things that he mentioned before, you know, geez, you play on a three and a half or a four read or we know what, why are you soaking your read in water? Or why are you warming up playing nothing but overtime? Why do you play such an old instrument? Yeah. Why is your instrument a hundred years old? There were so many things that to <laughs> me were normal that other people, it, it helped me stand out, not in the, just in the competition uh, mindset of things, but um, he, Dr. Guaz really helped me see a different approach to work well under pressure, to, you know, give my best. You know, you're, you're only going to perform as well as you practice. And so he would always make me practice as if I was performing, as if I was competing. And, and I just remember there was so many, I remember showing up to tryouts and there being a hundred people in a room and everyone's playing their instrument really loud, just trying to show off and playing their scales as fast as they can, as loud as they can. And that's where we had to warm up for, you know, mostly um, public clinics or uh, competitions or anything. And I can just remember I'd always pick a corner in the room and I would just start on low B flat and I'd play that joker as loud and as long as I could, not to overplay anybody, but just to focus on my Amish or my warm up, my mentality of, you know, and I was always known as the guy who would just stand in the corner and play low notes and hold them as long as I could. And everybody else was playing fast and showing off and, and I didn't, I wasn't trying to have that reputation, but, you know, Dr. Guaz always, you know, held me to a higher standard of, you know, we're going to, when you go to a competition, you want to dress your best. So I, I ended up wearing tuxedos or suit and ties. And, you know, so it, I just learned so much and looking back on it, it was such a cool way of teaching. Um, and I thank you so much for it because um, I just, I still to this day find myself looking back on trying to see things for more than just what they are, not just painting the fence, not just wax on, wax off. And so there's so many things that throughout our lessons and our friendship and him mentoring me that I learned throughout the years, it was more of um, how can you become a great leader? And on, that's really cool you said that about a teacher is that I ended up teaching uh, lessons for a while. I didn't feel like I was probably ready, but I ended up teaching music lessons, whether it was piano or saxophone. And, and I, I got that joy from from Dr. Guaz and just being able to see uh, a student who's excited about it and being able to um, help them and give them, you know, things to practice and things to work on and kind of draw out that passion for music and, and seeing that light bulb click and oh they get it and they, they like it. So I just wanted to share that, that there's so many cool memories. People used to make fun of me and they're like, oh man, your ligature is upside down. I'm like, no, your, yours is wrong. Like <laughs> mine, mine is right. Yours is wrong. <laughs> There's so many memories I have of that. So, um, and there's just, I'm just thankful, Dr. Guaz, for your um, creativity and your unique way of, um, you know, creating an atmosphere in your, in your office where, you know, come as you are, um, but we're going to make you better. And, you know, it's just a, it's just such a good mindset that a lot of people these days don't, don't really have. There's not a lot of instructors or students that are, you know, as blessed and as fortunate as I was to, truly be to study under someone who really really cares about you and you know wants what's best for you and so um i just wanted to take a minute to make sure that you knew that's how i felt and i've, I've told you some of that before but it's, it's i know it's been so long since we've seen each other in person but you really have been the biggest uh influential person i've ever had because part of me felt guilty for not continuing saxophone as a career and I struggle with that a lot um, just because but I just felt a tug in different directions and so 
but I always felt uh, this feeling of wanting to make you proud. And, and there was a time I struggled with that. I, was, I told my wife, I'm like, I just, sometimes I feel so guilty that Dr. Waz gave so much time and invested so much effort. And, you know, uh, part of me, you know, I st- part of me still to this day wishes I would have continued down that road. I know everything happens for a reason, but, um, you know, you, you definitely left a, a lasting impression and that, you know, I, I would always catch myself thinking, I wonder if Dr. Waz is still upset at me for not, not pursuing still it. upset? I never <laughs> was. Well, there you go. See? I mean, I was disappointed when you, you made certain decisions, but, you know, a, a teacher, I'm speaking in very broad sweeping terms here, a teacher has to know um, for, for everyone's benefit when to let go. And, um, you, you know, your life is not my life and my life isn't yours, obviously either. So you know yourself better than I do or than I did. So, um, you know, a a teacher's disappointments about this or that happenstance, um, is small potatoes compared to what comes about as a result of those decisions. So, um, I mean, do, do I realize that I could have made you into a, or could have helped you become, uh, you know, a professional saxophonist or a professional teacher of the saxophone? Well, sure, but that wasn't, that wasn't meant to be. Because if it were, it would have happened. It just would have. So, you know, and by no means are you the only person to have made such decisions. You know, so um, it's just part of life that we all have to experience. So what was, as as a performer, what, and, and it may be hard to pinpoint, but do you have a favorite live performance or memory of a performance that you've done. I know you've Ooh. performed a lot. I, um, I've been. I was even doing more research as for you as far as some of your accolades and stuff. Because even being younger, I still didn't realize how just profound Dr. Guaz was and his his reach. But um, I'm not near the level of performer that you are. But I, I was even thinking that's a hard question for me even to answer because there's so many things that probably could stand out in your mind, but is there a performance or a location or an event that maybe you, that kind of stands out as whether like that was my favorite or the most, uh, prestigious or, I mean, how, how, how do you feel like you could answer that? Yeah. That's actually an easy question for me. Um, in fact, the poster from that very concert is just over your shoulder here that tall blue one there on the on the wall uh, from Zurich when uh, I was soloist with the uh, Zurich Chamber Orchestra. Uh, that performance actually came about as a result of, there's another poster in there. There it is. Well, it's, can't see it on the camera, but it's behind. I'm going to get some shots. When we're done with this interview, I'm going to take some pictures, yeah. video of some of the posters just so that you guys can see yeah. how many amazing... Those two concerts are related to each other because even though they're about two years apart, um, 
that one led to that one. Um, at the dress rehearsal for this concert, the, the conductor, this was at the Menuhin Festival uh, in, the, in the heart of the Alps of Switzerland. The conductor came up and said, um, uh, we were playing the Frank Martin Ballade, which was a phenomenal piece uh, from Mr. Rosher's repertoire with orchestra. And um, he asked, he, he, no, he just came out and said, I want to do this piece again with you in two years. And I'm just mesmerized by him just coming out and saying that. And I said, okay, please explain. And he said, in two years, it's the composer's centennial of his birth. Yeah. Uh, Frank Martin was born in 1890. So we were coming up on 1990 at that time. And he said, I would like to include this piece on one of our orchestra concerts. And I said, and where will that be? And he said, that will be in Zurich in Town Hall. Now, that's the equivalent in Switzerland of Carnegie Hall. And I said, I was a little bold at that, probably a little too bold for my pants size. But I said, okay, could... I will do it on one condition. Would you be willing to do another piece with it? And he said, what piece do you have in mind? And I thought for a few seconds and I said, the Iber Concertino de Camera. He said, you have it. Bam. Yeah. The deal was made. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in September of 1990, that concert happened. And... Um, that that was uh, that was a concert in which I began the program playing the Martin piece that we had played before. Then there were two Mozart pieces. One was a symphony, and the other was a piano concerto with a. Uh, it was he Serbian, I think, uh, the the pianist. We met briefly backstage, and then I came out at the end and played the Iber. With, with the orchestra. I played both pieces from memory. And um, it was almost the same kind of uh, scenario as yours when you said that you, you, you were around such a great atmosphere at such a young age because after I finished the, the Iber, I had no clue what I was in for. Uh, the the applause was so strong that the conductor was pushing me out back on stage to acknowledge the, the audience. There were 2,500 people at this concert. And uh, so I walked out and took a, a, an additional solo bow, came backstage. The applause would not stop, so the conductor walked out with me, and we both took a bow together along with the orchestra. We bowed again, came backstage. The applause was still not finished. And so that's when he grabs me by the arm and he said, might you have a little encore? I had nothing prepared. Nothing. So I said, okay. So I walked out there. I said, I looked up to the heavens and I said, give me something. And so I I, I just, I, this was a, a moment where I, I was just not in control. It was all divinely inspired. And I just came up and said, 
beret of Henry Purcell, which is on that same CD that you referred to earlier. And so I played without piano, the first beret from, from that uh, recording. And um, it was like a minute or so, just, just quick enough to say thanks for clapping so loud. You know? <laughs> and the audience just broke out more applause, you know, and I've seen oh my goodness, this is crazy, you know? And I walked backstage and um, and the applause continued. The conductor came out with me one last time. We both took a bow with the orchestra, you know? Um, yeah, that concert was immemorable. Yeah, yeah, because um, that was my first experience of having people like it to that extreme, you know, it's kind of like one of those moments out America's got talent. Oh, they throw you flowers know. on the stage. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I had a bouquet at the end. That's amazing. That. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that poster in your office. Mm -hmm. I can remember, um, a lot of these posters I can remember, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, don't remember every single word that was on them, but I can just remember like, it's a, just a, such a flashback of memories but i do remember the the blue one I always remembered the yeah. uh, the cool art artwork and crosses or you know rectangles on the bottom i can remember that never really understanding the the importance of that poster but that's that's a very cool story and i'm, I'm glad you shared that for sure um so cool uh a few more just quick questions do you um i know you've you've had several um uh know how to say has several um recognitions is, are, is there ever an award i mean not that we talked about your favorite performance and maybe you know um but was was there ever any type of recognition or award or prize or anything that you've been gifted as a musician that you're that's kind of like the most proud like i received this or for you know for my my hard work and dedication toward well the university uh uh, on rare occasions, uh, would come out with, uh, you know, like a, you're a star in terms of uh, performance activity and all that sort of thing. But I, uh, I didn't expect a question like this. But um, I, I can answer it though. This is why you give your guests questions. No, that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Uh, actually, I'm about to receive something that falls into is really the yeah the uh, the question that you're asking about. Uh, in November, I'm getting on a plane to go back home, actually, to Niagara Falls because my high school has made the decision to induct me into the high school's Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I mean... Niagara Wheatfield High School in Western New York. Um, you know, most people don't even know where that is, what school that is, what where in New York is it. But I do know where it is. Um, it's a school that at that time boasted a music program that was enviable. 
um, first clarinetist in that band, uh, was such an artist that when she became, she was a year younger than I, and in her senior year, the band director asked her to play the finale movement of Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto in a band transcription at the biggest, um, most noteworthy band and orchestra conference in the country in Chicago, the Midwest. And um, I took clarinet lessons from her for two or three years. Um, she was just unbelievable. And uh, so th this is the kind of school with a music program at that time that people knew about, at least in the state. People knew about Niagara Wheatfield High School. So for them to want to um, put, put my name on a plaque or whatever they're going to do, I mean, I'm, I'm about to find out in, at the beginning of November, but uh, and some of my relatives from the area are going to go with me to the dinner, you know, and all that. But uh, I'm not alone. There are about four or five other people who did various things in life, like one of them is a, an army colonel, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, so different kinds of people there. But uh, so I, I'm going to have to answer your question with that, you know, being inducted into the Niagara Wheatfield Hall of Fame because that's, uh, that's meaningful. I, I mean, I absolutely. I loved the school. I I loved the the music program. It it was, it was the foundation for me in terms of my musical training. That, so it's full circle coming yeah, back around. Exactly. Yeah. So I've always heard that sometimes people who have achieved great levels of influence or recognition that sometimes their hometowns it can that can be harder to leave an impression or. Um, you know, some, I could be wrong, but a celebrity of your status, you may be able to correct me, but a lot of times, you know, sometimes I've heard stories or interviews that sometimes the people who they feel like they're, they're least accepted or least welcome when they come back to their hometown. So to me, hearing that your hometown is honoring you and, and, mm -hmm. you know, um, elevating you, that's just a, that's such a cool thing yeah. to hear. That's amazing. Very cool. If there's... You're going to play now, right? I show what kind of a teacher I am. No. I, hey, you know what? On the way over here, I was like, yeah, I should have brought my saxophone. Um, if you, two kind of questions like this are just really quick, quick answers. If you could give your younger self any advice or an aspiring musician, someone who's not even just a saxophone player, but just someone, I guess that's kind of a, a, a double answer. Your younger self, any advice or uh, a young musician who's aspiring to um, not just make music their career, but just who loves music and um, wants to better themselves in the art of music as well. Any any type of advice, maybe to any young listeners out here who are just now starting to learn, or maybe they're older in, in life and they're wanting to pick up an instrument, um, but from from Dr. Guaz himself, what's is there any kind of advice you can give to us or any of the listeners that may be? Yeah, I would say, uh, I would keep them uh, there'd be two things I would say and they're both short thoughts first one would be consider the source where's that music coming from that you love so much where's that 
sound of the saxophone that you love so much coming from? Where did it come from? And I'm, I'm not going to answer that question here. I'm, I'm going to just leave that thought out there. The other piece of advice I would offer is seize opportunities. Don't let opportunities just pass you by. And you know that just as well as anybody because I didn't let you seize, uh, uh, let the opportunities pass you by. You jumped into a van with six or seven other students, college-age students, and travel. How many miles was it? A thousand, maybe? We drove. We drove. Oh, yeah, two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we drove all that, the way to Western that's, New York. That's something, Dr. Guaz, that I don't remember if I said earlier, but that you always were challenging me. You know, yeah. you'd, you'd always find a competition or you'd have found this, we're going to enter you into this. And Life is not supposed to be easy. Yeah, and that's, it's, you, you really did instill so much of seizing the opportunity. And it's, it's, to me, this is kind of a full circle thing as well, is just being able to hear insights from you as, as my instructor, as my teacher, and hearing that piece of advice you give to people watching this or listening to it. Um, you definitely made me seize every opportunity. Or I won't say made, you, you did a, a great job at providing opportunities for me. And you'd always give me the choice, but you would, you would highly suggest, hey, you, this is coming up, you really need to do this. And they usually required learning a new piece of music or working with a new pianist or working, memorizing more music. So it's, um, I just think that's awesome that... You know, remember what my... The first person who gave me saxophone lessons, what he said to me during that Christmas vacation, if you get good, there will be a place for you. You know, well, how do you get good? Well, you seize opportunities. You know? So, um, yeah. So I, I walked that walk. I know what it's like. What better thing to do than to pass that on? Well, and... Just so that everyone watching and and you have a son who's about yes, to benefit from that. Ab absolutely, um, I appreciate you instilling that into me at such a young age. It's nothing against my parents or other teachers or anything, but no. just just from a from a person who they were always behind you. Yeah, who directly studied under you. You, you like those those disciplines and those values that you. Whether you realize or every not, you were directly... Every competition you were at, that, that you played in, your parents were there. Absolutely. They, that is so important. They did. They they were such huge supports. And so shout out to my parents uh, yep. when they watched this. So absolutely. Um, I, I more so just mean from a, I guess from a, um, a, an artistic or a creative side of of seizing the opportunities and always just, just, do, just being your best. You know, I can, I can remember sometimes you'd stop and you, I'd be playing something and you'd stop. You can do that better. Or let's try that again. Or, you know, it was always a, a, a good, um, a good, uh, push for just be the best you can be. Cause I mean, I feel like that's, you know, if God gives us an ability or a talent, you know, we, we, the least we can do is for him is to give sure. back and do our best, um, and, and try to be the best we can be. Uh, because you know, I don't want to ever waste what God, the abilities that God has given us. So that's that's a great 
That's a great piece of advice. Two last two things. Do you have a favorite quote that you can leave us with? Um, whether I know you kind of just did a piece of advice, but is there a, a quote from any professor, any instructor, any WWE wrestler, Ric Flair? <laughs> I didn't think you were going to go there. Oh, that's my last question. I'm saving the best for last. Oh. Any quote that you... Sure. Um, in order to become a good musician, you have to play great music. You won't become a good musician playing substandard music. It needs to be great music. You were proof of that. That young man was proof of that. Every student who I encountered during my 36 plus years at Southern Miss and be before that, they, they got that impression. Well, Dr. Quas, why won't you teach us those Joplin rags? Why won't you let our quartet play those Scott Joplin rags? Or why can't we play a uh, medley of Beatles tunes or whatever, you know, you want to use here? And I'll, that's what I throw back at. I think for anybody watching this, um, I think that's a such a good piece of advice and a quote. Is that your quote? Is that you? Did you make that up? No. There you, or do you want to give credit, or can I just say sure? But he's not alive anymore. On the, on the fray, Mitsubishi again. You know, it's amazing. Um, I think that's great advice for anybody, regardless of music. If you're whatever your craft is, if you're an electrician, if you're whatever you're doing, you know, if you want to be good at it, then do great. Whatever you do needs needs to be great. Um, the reason I'm asking you is, uh, recently, the past couple of years of um, since starting my business and just really been ob obsessed with trying to be excellent. Um, Benjamin Franklin, the, the quote, if better is possible, then good is not enough. And which really ties back to a lot of what you, if better is possible, then then don't just be good, be better and do the best. If you're going to dump the trash, dump it the best way you can. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to clean your room, if you're going to, you know, run errands for your boss, if you're going to, prepare a piece for your um, saxophone instructor, you know, do better, like be better. And so that's, that's something I'm always trying to learn and self-develop. The last, last thing I'm going to say is I just, I know the answer to this, but our audience doesn't. I need to know who is your favorite WWE. <laughs> I know this answer. I don't believe I, cause I can, I can recall you, you doing poses and doing chants and look, there is a, hold on, hold on one second. This is still recording, but it's going to be great. I, I'm going to need, before I even show this. Oh, no. Dr. Guaz, really? I need to know, before I show. That was given to me. You know that. I didn't buy that. He he bought it. I did not buy that. I didn't. Who is your favorite? But this is, was one of my favorite memories of Dr. Guaz is that <laughs> if you know him and meet him and see him, or if you don't know him, you, you wouldn't really picture this legendary musician. Right as a a wwe fan but he he is on it and he is that's one of the funniest you know memories you know something i actually make no apologies for that anymore because of something I that i apology. just yeah. i think maybe two weeks ago on a saturday morning i had the today i like to watch the today show and then drink my coffee in the morning i had the today show on it was on a weekend probably a saturday one of their really active i mean you you see him on television all the time doing news reports his name is joe fryer i don't know if you if you watch nbc at all I and mean, if, if not it's okay but 
Uh, he's one of their, um, he's out, you know, covering this story and that story and that story. Anyway, he happened to be at the desk that morning uh, on the Today Show of Saturday. And I don't know, they, the, the, the other two on the team turned to him and they said, uh, so Joe, um, I don't know, they asked him some question. I can't even think of what it was. And he, his response was, now, you know, there's something about me that only those who are closest to me know about me. And that's the fact that I am, he's speaking of himself, I am a diehard WWE wrestling fan. And I could not believe it that here is this very well-known newscaster from NBC at the news desk proclaiming to the country that he is a wrestling fan. And I said, so what's wrong with me being? You know, if if somebody like that, you know. Do you follow the new WWE or is oh, it just absolutely. The, I'm 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 in front of the tube every Monday night at seven for three hours. It's a three hour show. Do you know Logan Paul? Oh yeah. <laughs> sure I do. He just lost, by the way. <laughs> oh my gosh. So Listen, favorite WWE. Now you know what you, WrestleMania is. Yeah, Everybody in the country knows what WrestleMania. Everybody in the world knows what WrestleMania. Is. It is real. It's, it's all. No, <laughs> of course not. That's not the point. Uh, it's a good show. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, but WrestleMania, when, um, when I was still teaching at my studio, my studio knew every the first Sunday. Usually, it was the first Sunday of April. Of every year, it was hands off Dr. Guaz. Don't you dare schedule your junior or senior recital on that day because he is going not to be, be at home. No, he was not coming in for that that particular day because it's WrestleMania Sunday. We would have WrestleMania parties here. I mean, I would make the pizza, we would lay out the chips and the dip and chicken wings you know you name your typical super bowl food you know that yeah. kind of thing you know and people would bring things and we would all be parked in that room back there on the floor on the chairs on the sofas and oh yeah yeah i mean it was a almost a spiritual activity you know uh, every april and i have news for you you had no way of knowing this you know what Skull was, right? Remember that group? The Sax Chamber Orchestra. We were this close to being asked to play at WrestleMania in New Orleans. <laughs> they called me because I sent them a, a, a package of materials. We, we had already made our two CDs, so I sent Vince McMahon, the head guy of WWE, sent a package on behalf of Skull saying, listen, you're coming in April to our neck of the woods here, we'd be more than happy to play the national anthem or America the Beautiful, you know, whatever intro introductory music they would want. For. That would have been so cool. It would have. They called and talked to me with a, so you've got this saxophone orchestra down there. I said, yes, I did. It, just for people who don't know, quickly explain what the, how you've, that's something that you've really built from the ground up when you started there. At Sax this university, The yes. Saxophone Chamber Orchestra, maybe yeah. explain what, what that is. Well, the name of the group is actually a hyphenated term, Sax Chamber, which refers to the kind of mouthpiece that we all used, what you used when you were my student, 
sax chamber orchestra. It was an, an 11 member group, sometimes a little larger depending on the music we were playing, but generally it was an 11 um, member orchestra, two sopranos, four altos, two tenors, two baritones, and a bass. And we would put on yearly concerts, but well, actually semester concerts. Uh, we would tour. We we played uh, national conventions, uh, music conventions at, at times. And uh, so we, there was an established reputation here of just of that part of the studio. Uh, we played at the World Saxophone Congress, in fact. Yeah, so it's an ensemble of just sax. Yes. Purely saxophones. And, and, and we have CDs out, two CDs out. One's called America Remembers. The other one's called um, Parabolically Bach. Okay. So, yeah. He, he knows what that means. I could so. be wrong. I think I played, well, I know that I was in, uh, when I was studying at Southern, I was, I had to play in the- You popped uh, into some rehearsals. Uh, yeah. But I, I played in a group. I don't know if it was the Sax Chamber Orchestra. Maybe it was a different group. But I remember playing the Barry Sax in- Quartet. The quartet. I remember wearing a um, a snowman out. Oh no, you, that was Sco. That was the orchestra. I, it was Christmas time. Yes. I just remembered as you were talking about. Oh, you were hilarious. I remember that. You, I mean, you you looked like you were in a body cast. I had. I went to Walmart to and got a a, a wired uh, snowman outfit and punched a hole in it and punched holes in my arms and I was. And all you could see was the saxophone, big baritone saxophone mouthpiece going into that slit. I don't I think thought, I told I him. thought I was going to lose it. I, I didn't I didn't tell Dr. Guaz because I was like, he's either going to love it or he's going to be really mad. Oh, it was hysterical. <laughs> anyway, sorry, back to the, the yeah. WrestleMania. So you guys, what happened to not being able to? I never heard back. There was no follow-up afterwards, you know. And I, actually, I kind of tried to initiate follow-up. Like, so are you still interested? And, and I would never get calls returned. And it was just one of those situations where, well, maybe if he, if we just don't acknowledge him after a while, you know, he'll he'll forget about us. And after a while, I got the message that well, clearly, if they're that interested, they would they would be reaching out. But oh yeah, that would have been so phenomenal to to play that show because it I've was never it. heard that story. It, yeah, I know you didn't. Um, bec and when I announced it to the group, I said, "You've got. I can't tell you exactly why, but you need to reserve April, whatever that date was." because there's the possibility of an important concert for us. And Eric Fry, who's now the band director in Pace St. Louis, um, he looked straight at me and he mouthed the word. And all I did was acknowledge him with a head nod, you know. Oh, that's And amazing. I said, but what, there is this possibility, but it's not set in stone yet. You know, but you need to save that date in case it happens. I can just remember you yelling Ric Flair and all these. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to show this before we stopped. That's not Ric Flair. I That's know this jumps. is not Ric Flair. but This was a Christmas gift from one of the students. But it's just sitting in the corner here and it's fantastic. I just had to, like, the, the passion is real. The passion is real. No. And uh, Dr. Gwaz, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me i know we've kind of i know i talked a lot but it's just a it's very special to be able to sit and talk with you and hear especially your, wrestling it's not wrestling but just to to hear you explain some of these posters and talk about you know there's some things that you've shared with me today that i didn't know about how you got involved in music and with uh with with rasher and it's just such a ah it's it's a very humbling experience to just sit and uh and catch up with you and talk about 
how you've impacted the saxophone community and how you've impacted my life. And I'm sure there are countless other students that could sit here and tell a bunch of stories of all the wonderful things you've done. So just, I thank you for your time. Um, I'm going to put links to his music on Spotify and any articles you guys would like to read. He's just got a ton of accolades. I wanted to read this as we, excuse me, as we close, I took a screenshot of this earlier and I thought it was great. Uh, this is off of Wikipedia. It says Guaz's Carnegie Hall debut was described as a, in musical America as an extraordinary performance of contemporary music with the kind of timber Adolph Sachs most likely had in mind, always with subtlety and taste. So that's, I mean, for for someone to leave, you know, that type of uh, stamp on the world, on the music world is just amazing to be able to sit and talk with you. And it's, it's been an honor to study under you all these years, to be a friend. Um, it beats a pile driver, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, so once again, thank you to Dr. Guaz. Thank you for the listeners. Um, please go check out his music. I understand he was telling me earlier that he's not necessarily one that posted the music to the accounts. I think it's the, the publishers or the, the owners or whatever. But I'll post CD links. companies. The CD companies. But it is beautiful. I, the whole hour and a half ride, I was just listening uh, just to get in touch with my inner Guaz and just get in the zone so please go listen to his music um i really would appreciate uh, a subscribe a follow a like anything show dr Gua some love for his time here and just for all that he's done for the saxophone community so if you enjoyed this please let us know um dr Gua, thank you again for your time pressure was all mine yeah, the pressure the pressure was all mine thank you for letting me take up your time well thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back hopefully with uh, another episode um you know next time i'm not sure who i'll be interviewing but I wanted Dr. Guaz to be the first person uh, that I do on this podcast, uh, like I said before, just because he's been uh, single-handedly the most influential person in my life uh, that's carried through as an adult, you know, besides besides my parents. But um, I just it really means a lot uh, to, to sit and talk. So thank you again. And now a word from City Card. <laughs> now a word from City Card. Y'all have a good one. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch y'all next time. Thank you.